Hey Tim, uh, welcome to the show. Um, I wanted to have you on the podcast because you did a bunch of interesting things that I find interesting and we talk about on this podcast. Uh, you've been a software engineer, turned entrepreneur, uh, now you're running a VC fund um, and that too in infrastructure software, which you know, as someone who's been a software engineer, that's super interesting to me. So it's a bunch of topics that uh, you know I find interesting and that's sort of like the, in the lane for the podcast. Uh, so thanks for coming out of the show. Yeah, excited to be here. Um, so first, you know, to give the listeners a little bit more context about you, uh, can you talk a little bit about your early career? You know, what did you study uh, and how did you get into software engineering? Yeah, my career. Um, so I, I guess... I don't know how early we can go to. I'm sure everybody's childhood <laughs> has computers, you know. So I'll skip that little thingy. You know, we all play with basics and one level. That's kind of how old I am. <laughs> Our first little playing language is basics. And, you know, one thing I think to maybe worth highlighting for me is, you know, I went to University of Washington here locally in Seattle. And, um, you know, I, I wish my life would be much easier. I would just go into computer science and then just waste time to some 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 jobs. I couldn't get into CS. My my GPA was too bad <laughs> that uh, CS wasn't a thing. So I went to a, a major called informatics at, at UW and uh, turned out no software engineering jobs know what this degree is about and don't think you're 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 that easily qualified. So I had to do so much internships i probably did like four internships and then a volunteering here and there anyway that's how i got into <clears throat> how i got into software engineering i really like coding and uh i just spent a lot of time open source because you know to me open source is like this very accessible way you know i don't have to give somebody else my resume to start working on open source right so it's kind of a fun way so i've been just doing a little bit of open source contribution and reading and so i went to microsoft as my first intern Ship, actually fourth internship uh, and then got joined a, a full-time in Microsoft. Actually, I was more on the IT side, which for people that knows Microsoft is not the most fun place to be at. You know, <laughs> you, know you don't really get to code that much, which yeah. is really odd, you know? So anyway, it's not the most ideal place to be at. So yeah, open source was what I was working on. I was working on like, uh, I remember Ruby, the language, Ubuntu, you know, just small patches here and there just kind of fuel my imagination. And I really love, uh, for a non-CS person, I'm really loving system stuff. So I spent so much time reading, you know, going through lectures online, you know, reading the, the, the Princeton's, you know, all the basic curriculum and just going through all that stuff. So I, I feel like I'm a semi self-taught programmer, uh, even though not completely, but that's, it's somewhat true. Um, so that's how I got into programming, to be honest, and engineering. And yeah, you've been a software developer for a while, right? Before yeah. you starting your company. Yes. Um, yes. And how? And at some point, you decided to start a company. And how did that happen? Yeah. So I'll, I'll fast forward. So I've been a software engineer, right? I went to Microsoft, and you know, like I said, it wasn't really that fun for me. So I went to, and that was like the big layoffs happened, but back in nineteen oh nine, and ten. So the only job available was startups. Um, and I joined a startup. And I was like, wow, this is so much better. I can actually code. I can actually own everything. So that got me interested in startups a lot uh, by joining a couple of startups here in Seattle. Um, and I also got a lot more into open source. You know, I started to be much more seriously working on open source. I worked on Cloud Foundry. 
as an open source and a, a projects and a company. And uh, I met the Redis, I guess one of the main maintainers of Redis. I was co-worker with him. I saw how much influence he has in a, in a space. So I got very, very intrigued by that. So long story short, I went down to California and um, I originally joined a Kafka team at LinkedIn to work on Kafka. So I was working on Kafka beforehand and I got, you know, the, the, the Kafka team reached out. So I joined it. Uh, but just in a couple of months, I got post to join Mesosphere. Uh, most people probably not have ever heard of this company, but it was very popular container management. So basically Kubernetes. We were Kubernetes before Kubernetes, basically. We're running a Twitter production, we're running Apple production. So that being early in that time back in 2014 was pretty pivotal for me because I was able to work with Docker co-founders, you know, and early Docker teams working on Docker. I saw how Kubernetes happened. We would basically create a CNCF together, right? All this really like pivotal transformational technologies back in those times, I was I was part of them. And so that led me to start a company. I, I always wanted to start a company. That was part of the reason why I moved down to California. Uh, you know, I I lived here for Seattle for quite some time. I never met any VC. None of my friends are founders. It's funny, you work at Microsoft and some other places. Even though I joined startups, still nobody I knew was the founder. I feel like this, you know, this place, you don't feel as much startup founder energy at all. Uh, but it's so different joining, went down to California, right? It's a night a day difference. So anyway, <clears throat> just hold this all the time. I've been searching, okay, what should I start? Who should I start with? And I think that really helped me because being a Mesosphere, now you see this whole industry wave of how containers is changing everything. Can, like, okay. can, you, can you talk a little bit more about what containers is? Because I don't think all the people who are listening actually know what a container is. Yeah, um, I think the easiest way to think of containers, if people know about what the cloud does, the cloud is a way you can get machines, right? So most people used to buy hardware, you know, physical machines. Now we can rent machines in, in, in the cloud and you treat them the same. Containers are even more smaller, lighter weight mm -hmm. machines that spin up much faster. You know, you can run in much more, a lot of them, <clears throat> much more quicker, and you can really treat them as the fastest machines you can really get your hands on in some level, right? But so that really changed the industry because once VMware introduced, not introduced, but really commercialized the, the VM space, containers is next. It was like a... 10x faster and cheaper way to run everything. Yeah, so if you know oh. VMs or virtual machines, then it's a 10x lightweight and much faster version of VM. Yeah, um, that's some level. Yes. Yeah, it's some level. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's kind of happened. So I started a company back in 16 because I was early in that wave. And I, I noticed that, you know, there's going to be, if containers going to be continue to be adopted everywhere, we need more solutions. Because back at that time, the only companies that exist like Mesosphere, CoreOS, you know, they're all trying to solve the first level problem, which is like, I want to run containers. Mm. Back then, the, Kubernetes wasn't that ready yet. So I just need to run containers. I need to help a way to actually keep it just just run in, in the basic level and develop simple frameworks to develop towards containers. I was like, hey, the next thing you need is to operate them. We need to actually be able to run them efficiently, run them in a safer manner. So... We, my co-founder, he's a Stanford professor, uh, been doing a lot of research. He was actually our head of research at Mesosphere and he, he left. So I team up with him 
And we found another co-founder uh, head of product from CoreOS, which is also a very popular container company back in the days. <clears throat> so three of us, we basically, hey, you know, if companies are going to use production, uh, containers in production, you'll probably use Mesos. You know, that's back in 16. You'll probably use Mesos, probably use Swarm. you probably use um, Kubernetes. doesn't matter. You need a way to able to look at your containers, know how to run them more efficiently because people are wasting money. People are just running it all, guessing all the numbers you should put in, like how much CPU you need for, for a container, which instance type you should use, how to do any of these settings are completely guessed numbers. So was uh, Kubernetes and like kubectl and all these tools at that point were not fully available? kubectl is available, but I think best practices of what how do you run containers, even still today, is still yeah, fuzzy. Still, right? yeah. Back in 16, though, no, not many people even know how to run kubectl itself, <laughs> which is funny. So that's how immature the market is. But, you know, because we live in Mesosphere, I think we live the future much sooner, right? Mm. Uh, we All our companies, all our early customers are using a lot more advanced. So we're we're seeing a more advanced future already. Yeah. And so I feel like we already know what the next thing should be. One Definitely one mistake, and we can talk about like mistakes of startups, is I was way too early to the market. You know, they don't even know how to use kubectl for the most yeah. part, right? So selling to like large companies, that's not going to happen for, for our kind of startups. But actually, that's what I did is... Hyperpilot, we raised a venture round and we basically were selling a solution that takes in your containers and we help you able to figure out how to configure and tune them and also help you figure out what the resource bottlenecks are. So it's like a performance and cost bottleneck analysis and, and optimization. And it was a lot of based on my co-founder's research at Stanford, which enables to, he his, his research actually been used in Google Borg, which is a large data center solution, to basically turn cluster utilization, uh, if you know what that is, it's, you buy a machine, maybe only use like 10%, 15% of your CPU most of the time. They brought it all the way to the 80% through a lot more smarter bin packing and isolation and that kind of thing. So we want to bring all of that mm. sort of smarter management into Kubernetes and similar technology. So that's kind of what we started 2016. But uh, so and then you sold the company to Cloudera relatively quickly, two three years. Uh, so how yeah. did that happen? <clears throat> well, it's not the the rosiest story. So, um, we're, we're way too early to the market. Like like mm -hmm. I said, like when we yeah, because I to... remember two thousand sixteen, there was a buzz around containers, but we were not actively using them. Um, yeah, I mean the people actively using, but not. Everywhere. Like it didn't reach out to everyone, mass there, scale. There was a lot of companies already, yeah. but obviously not thousands. Probably, yeah. you know, I don't know. I feel like I I live in a trap where I was too early on the forefront of an industry hmm. that will take a lot of time to gain true adoption. Yeah. But I already know all the forefront users. So in my, in my mind back in the day, like I know dozens or even hundreds of companies using yeah. containers. Yeah. But obviously there's like five, six digits companies out there. So in my mind, like, wow, so, so many of them, so many of them, I can go sell all of them, right? And so, and I know so much early, cause, and all they, they all know me through Meso, through Docker, right? You know, my name is not going to be foreign to them. I was like, hey, this is Tim. You remember me, we, you know, at MesosCon or, you know, our Apache meetups or whatever. So 
I feel like I probably have a good <clears throat> advantage when it comes to selling to container companies. But yeah, we were, I think one mistake we made is, you know, when you start a company with a technology advantage, because my co-founder, he's a researcher, <clears throat> and we have pretty significant technology advantage to do BIM packing and do all that stuff. It's like you're trying to sell that a lot. Like, yeah. I think that's the best thing for us to really be different. And so we tried different ways to kind of repackage this and re repurpose it. In the end of the day, companies back in 16 really just need simpler needs. Um, like, can you just help me just run my Kubernetes, yeah. right? How can you just troubleshoot Kubernetes much faster? All that stuff. And we didn't, I guess we we didn't choose to listen to what they need. Because we always felt like, hey, the GKE will solve that soon. You know, like EKS will solve that soon. We're just like, there's so many distributions happening. Like, why should we go solve that? Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be commoditized at some points, right? We don't want to bet on our company on that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to get in your foot in the door mm -hmm. of what the people need the most. So yeah. long story short, we gained some traction. We, we, we iterated a lot of products make it simpler and simpler, focus on more earlier problems, but it took too long for us to figure that out. So we um, was basically kind of running out of money and um, our seed extension didn't go through. I'm saying all this because it wasn't like a successful exit at anything. It's, it's just more like, okay, we either pivot, <laughs> shut down or do something else. And we, our seed investor actually gave us a bunch of options to, to do some of that. Uh, luckily, I think um, Cloudera reached out you know, I had a blog post. They they found me. They found our technology super intriguing. Um, and uh, um, yeah, Mike Olson, he also, I, it was a chat and Mike Olson reached out. The, the back of the day was a CTO. And yeah, we kind of agreed. Like, I think this is probably the best path forward is to just join forces instead. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of what happened. It's not a successful, hey, we have, hey, hey you know, Hail Mary, you know, big, big payday. Not really. It just is like, okay, let's just join. <laughs> You know, we made some money, you know, but not, 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 not crazy exit at any means. Yeah. Got it. Uh, what round did you raise before exiting? This is just seed. Yeah. This was just seed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, maybe you would have, you should have started a, a similar company again because it, it eventually took off, right? Like, yeah. I, like a lot of successful companies came out of the container space and, I think container space sort of ended up being sort of a foundational shift in infrastructure. Like everyone in some form sort of adopted. Yeah. And I think the reason maybe I didn't see containers as much, even though I like know that hey, containers are coming up, everyone is using, is because the dichotomy of being in a big tech company versus you know being at the edge of startups. I think you were at the edge of startups and I was at the yeah, big tech firm. So I was just hearing about it but you're not actually using it at that point um yeah yeah it's funny that after i sold my company or joined cloudera it's just a year after so many vcs reach out tim you should this is the right time get that team back together <laughs> and 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 this is also like the funding was so much easier days like yeah. 20 20 19 days yeah they're giving me numbers already, like term sheets. Like, dude, I I'll give you a whatever, you know, a round. Or, you know, you have the best team, your repeat founders. You still have chip on your shoulder, you know, whatever, you know, labels we put on us. Um, yeah, yeah. But I I, I didn't choose to do it. <laughs> okay, so then you moved back to Seattle, uh, from California, or how did you yeah, move back? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, yeah. I have a I have a kid. 
my wife and I really want to move back. So that's kind of the, I think post-acquisition, I moved back. Caldera let me work remotely. I think we have a few folks here anyways in Seattle. So yeah, I just come down to California once in a while. But yeah, basically work remote. Yeah. So uh, then at what point did the transition to investing start? Like this, this was at yeah. Cloudera or after? It's kind of, I will say it's not a instant transition, but definitely didn't happen too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened when I joined Cloudera? Well, I have more time and also a little bit of money. So um, I never done angel investing in my life, you know, and I've never been a VC in my life either. But um, I was really intrigued. You know, I'm definitely, I love startups. I want to do something around startups eventually. And a lot of friends reach out to talk about, hey, Tim, you know, you just sold your company. Do you want to angel invest in our startup? That conversation keep coming up. And I know nothing about investing, to be honest. And so I wasn't so sure how to do it. And so luckily, I feel like I have some money that allocate I can use to do investing. I think that was definitely a good thing that helped me because I have no capital. <laughs> you can't do this, right? You know, you have yeah. to have some capital you're willing to lose. Yes. You know, because I was not sure will this ever come back? It was a little scary. Yeah. Definitely first few checks, like, what the hell? This is not going to... I feel like I'm putting money into like some random <laughs> black hole that we'll never see it again. Like, I really felt like so. Like, I don't never seen any any examples of my friends or whatever whatsoever and it is like, this company looks so so odd or so raw like okay so anyway that i just started angel investing and treat them as like experiments but what i like is i really love the people probably that's kind of my first criteria like do i enjoy working with these people like do i feel like there's going to be good interactions we have with us so you know that's I don't know is that the right thing to think about it. That's how I thought about it initially. It's like, do I do I understand a problem a little bit, but I don't have to fully understand it so well. Like, do I think this founder has good energy? <laughs> do I enjoy working with? Do I learn a lot from working with them? Like, do I think like, it's a worthwhile investment for that relationship at least? You know, <clears throat> to some level, and that's that's kind of it. And um, yeah, that's how I got into investing because I think through that experiences, I think one thing that kind of surprised me. One is that um, I feel like investing, especially when you have some unique experiences or insights or, you know, like I feel like I understand how to help founders better than other investors because I'm a product and, you know, technology person, especially backing very technical people. I just have so much empathy for them. I know that transition myself really well. So founders really like to talk to me. It's like Tim, you don't. I guess when I was a when I was an engineer, angel investor, I never call me in a VC, right? You know, so hey Tim, you're you know, I I I just love talking to you about anything, you know, products, whatever, you know. I always have something. I bring also good energy to them, you know. I I encourage them a lot, and I also know what they how they work, what they think. Um, so they they keep telling me, Tim, you're one of the best investors we have. Period, on our cap table. So that that surprised me, uh, because I never done this before. There's a few companies that grew f- not crazily huge, but definitely grew quite a bit, like Flatfile. <clears throat> Why did the angel investments it it raised like a pretty big A round back in the day? I was like, oh wow, you know, I, when I see a little bit of success, I'm like, oh wow, this this is happening. <laughs> you know, I I would have no clue 
it's, I, it's really hard for me to predict the successes of any of these companies, but it, yeah. it happened. So, yeah. So when you started angel investing, did that sort of took the form of a fund or would you just try no, no, no. my, my own money okay. just completely out of my pocket? Yeah. No, Got no it. funds whatsoever. Uh, but obviously I didn't make that much money <laughs> from Cloudera. So yeah. there was really the smallest check I could write mm-hmm. and into like really like, yeah, I would think I backed probably eight to nine companies or something like that. Um, and then you realize that, okay, you, you are, there, there are a couple of things you have to figure out when you transition to a fund, right? One is obviously yeah. at what point did you realize that, hey, doing this fund thing might actually be, you know, worth your time. And then like, yeah. how did you figure out that, hey, infrastructure is the space I have to be in? You know, it's, it's not really that's. There's no crazy, I spend a week and meditate and this is what comes out. So they're, they're not really, it's it's really simple. And actually yeah. not even my idea. It's funny enough, this is actually, so this is what happens. I angel invested. I have no friends or VCs. So I didn't. I never thought raising a fund is even possible, by the way. Because it's not like I know a bunch of other folks that are doing this. Like there's none. Yeah. <laughs> so so my only reaction back in the day, because I, I'm, I'm running out of like loose money because you know none of my companies are selling in a year, right? Which is good. You don't want them to sell in yeah. a year. They're never going to return good money anyway. <clears throat> so I was running out of money. I can't keep investing. I do really like this. Among all their options, I was exploring starting another company. I was some exploring some roles I was interviewing for, and there's nothing really that exciting. Investing has been the most exciting of all, like most satisfying and most exciting. So I interviewed at some VC funds first. That's the only thing I thought. I said, I have to join the fund. Like, what else? How else can I do investing, right? And you know what? Nobody wants to hire me. <laughs> at least not, you know, they, they will give me feedback. Like, Tim, you're too senior as an associate, right? Which is kind of funny feedback. Basically, I, you know, I'm not good enough for anything else, really, right? You know, so... You know, just 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 yeah, go to something you're else. You're not rich enough to be a GP, and <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't exit my to company be to be that big, so I can just go slot in a GP role. I didn't go through MBA. I don't have a product role, like none of that stuff. Like I'm just a a low level engineer that works a bunch of places. Like, uh, did you show the you know how your nine companies were doing? They don't care. Angel investing is not always treated as a track record for. Mm joining roles because what people, this is what I learned in, in interviewing at other VC funds. They're not, they can always feel like your v, angel investing are just flukes, right? You're just backing friends, you know, but you cannot do it in a fund, right? You have to know how to work professionally mm-hmm. at a fund. And there's so many different aspects to be a professional VC. So they don't treat that too seriously, you know? They're like, okay, you have some interesting deal flow. You have some interesting things going on. I'm not sure you'll be a good investor because maybe you just randomly got lucky. (laughs) You know, like, how do I tell apart? And then they do some interview process and they quickly, I think because I don't come from a product um, background, our interview didn't just last that long. We don't actually talk about particular companies at all. Like, hey, what, 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 what is your background? What do you like to do? And and just just stop there. <laughs> so you know, so this is what happened. I moved back to Seattle. I interviewed some funds here, you know, and still no one had to hire me. So one of my good friends, he's a 
Angela's partner back in the day called Jake Seller. And I was just talking to him, like, hey man, I I don't think I have any, I don't know what to do now. You know, nobody wants to hire me. I I, I don't have much capital, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about next steps. And he just gave me an idea one day, like Tim, you should go raise a fund. It's like, what, I can raise a fund? You know, what 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 you're talking about, you know? Typical, typical Angelist Tim, right? Yeah, I, I never, I don't know. He knows, he's seen it, I never seen it. You have to know people doing it to believe it, right? I don't know anybody back yeah, then. Yeah, the idea of asking people you don't know money to invest in companies. Yeah, especially like I've never been know. a VC, right? Yeah. It's like even more weird. Like who will give me money? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, that's how I started. Jake gave me, uh, so like, hey, Tim, this is what you should do. You should just focus on infrastructure because I think you you know that space well. He's like, okay. And here's what you should do. You should just raise 1 million to start, <clears throat> you know, back 20 companies or something like that, you know, uh, charge no fees, just make this a proof of concept fund, right? And I'll I'll bring you to some LPs I know. So he brought me to Bing Capital first. Uh, he's one of the friends who worked there, Samit's that he left, but was our first contact, you know, a couple of chats in. And uh, I think Bing got excited and be my first LP back in the day. And that was pretty much confidence boosting for me. Like, wow, this this stuff, this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, so, the yeah, it's VC business, we call that as what anchoring a fund. And it, in some level, in I mean, some level, right? when you do a company, your lead is putting in most of the round. Yeah, yeah. In VC world, LPs are putting in maximally like five to ten percent. So yeah. <clears throat> that's back in kind of what they did. But at least that's a very promising sign for me. At least like, oh, okay, somebody like them thought me running a small fund is a good idea. So yeah. So, how so that's long how did, I started. So yeah. how long did that uh, take you to raise that $1 million? Uh, so I think three months, probably. About three, probably. four months. Yeah. And then how long did you deploy it? Uh, I took 13 to 14 months to deploy that. Yeah. And was Jasper part of Fund 1? No, no, no. Fun, that's Fund 2. That's Fund okay. 2. Yeah. So you deployed Fund 1. Um, you didn't take any caddy. No, uh, oh, I no, didn't carry. Oh, no you, you didn't take any management. No management fee. fees. I'm not paying um, myself anything. So I was working yeah. still and deploying as well. Got it. So you're you're working and running the fund. Yeah. Um. So, at during this journey, did you feel like you know this is the thing that I'll continue doing, or you know this yeah. this whole money raising and deploying business is uh, you know not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know I don't know what to expect to be honest at all. Right. I never run a fund before. I don't know what's gonna happen. So. It's really just an experiment. And, and Jake told me, just treat it, as a, treat it as a proof point that you actually like this job. Because most people that he know of thinks they like investing, but don't actually love it enough mm. to fully pursue this. Because once you pursue this, it's a long-term game, yeah. right? Because you raise a fund is 10 years, you know, and you know your ex- expectation is going to come back. Because the biggest LPs don't want to back these one-off funds, right? They're finding long-term strategy funds that will last for a while. That's what they want to put their money on. <clears throat> so I'm just like an experimental thingy. Um, yeah, and what I learned from that fund one, obviously I think I proved one thing to LPs is I have ways to get into really good companies and in infrastructure space and small checks. So I'm running 25, 50K, right? These are like small angel checks. They don't even know my fund name. 
I call my I said Essence VC like to back you, and then on a TechCrunch article is always Tim Chen. <laughs> they never even remember the fun name whatsoever. It's just always my name shows up because they, it's always just me, anyways, right? So they just put it, treating me as angel money, uh, but I'm proving my value to them. And so because, you know, there are two sides of the fun, right? Like one is getting good deals, so and then what happens is even though you sometimes you get good deals, so then you're not you're not always getting allocated in that yeah. good deals right so yeah. do you like face that problem uh like you really like the company but you know because funding environments are so hard like once you see like a good founder good team good idea like it's closing so fast that you couldn't get it yeah i think i mean that happens all the time even now right yeah <clears throat> but i think that one thing that kind of gave me excitement is the funds start to work on its own is when you start to see the excitement. Because when I started just on the beginning of end of 19 is when I did my first, like my full close and <clears throat> deploying. When I just started deploying, obviously getting to some of the hot rounds was a little tricky, even for 25K, to be honest. Like, yeah. like that I'm was gonna... probably the hottest periods, right? 19, Yeah, so, so that, that was a little trickier. But one thing that helped me quite a bit is my founders start to talk about me more. So, you know, when I back transform data or when I backs, you know, some other, and some, some of my LPs are pretty good operators in this space because those are my friends as well. So they speak really good, nicely about me. I think my LPs plus my founders speak really good things about me, allowing me to get into really good deals. So um, one company I back, I think called Metaphor back in the day uh, was, was pretty hot round back then. This is like the <clears throat> LinkedIn data hub, you know, spin out company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember that was a super hot round, right? You know, Andreessen and Amplify co-leading and, and uh, the founder looked at me as like, you know what, Tim, I already heard about you. You know, I'm, I'm part of this little informal data infra founder slack that we put together ourselves and two founders already talked. You're one of the best investors they had. So, I didn't have to sell <laughs> at that point. It's like, Tim, how much do you want? Uh, it was like first funny. It's a very funny conversation. You know, like uh, I was like, okay, wow, this, this, this works. Um, and, but obviously it works through word of mouth only, right? Yeah. You're not going to find me that much online. I don't have that much Twitter followers, but for founders that know how to work with me, I, I think I know I have the highest confidence for myself that I know how to work with founders because I was a founder myself. I was basically trying to make sure I I want to be someone that get the biggest value myself in some level. So I have a lot of thoughts around that. And, you know, so I, I feel pretty good about how to help infra founders. Hmm. I just never know how to sell it. <laughs> but having my founder sell it for me is, is the best, is the best marketing, I think. So that's kind of, that's how it works. And so yeah. I think effectively because my founders, when they're, they're top tier funded backs, right. And they're speaking really good things about me. My reputation starts to grow on its own. So other investors start to notice me as well. So, you know, other funds, some of them are probably already know me because I pitched them back. I was a founder. So I went down, up and down. Santa Rosa. So I'm not a complete stranger. I was like, Hey Tim, I remember you, you know, <laughs> came to our office back in 16, you know, like talk about this container, crazy, whatever startup you're doing. Uh, and we're just like, start to hear about me over and over again through other founders and through other investors. And I think that just kind of started growing. So it's, 
it's cool to see something works. Yeah. You know, it's cool to see something that's actually working and is growing. And I have so much fun. To me, like working with founders is like one of the most fun jobs ever. And of course, I had to learn other things like picking. <laughs> and, you know, every new fun, you're learning some new things. But like that's that's kind of how I knew for me, like I want to continue this because I think if I really love working with founders and I want to keep doing this for a long period of time, I have to figure out a way to able to raise a larger fund because pay myself nothing is not the option forever, right? So I got to raise a larger fund. I got to figure out a story that kind of continue to raise more funds. So, yeah. So then you deployed fund one, you're getting good traction from your founders and, you know, your reputation is sort of building, you know, there are seed and series rounds happening for your first fund. So yeah. um, what was the second fund like? Did you raise the second fund? Uh, I think <clears throat> now you're on fund three, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, yes. Um, yes. So you, yeah. like, how large was the fund two and what was that experience like? Yeah, fund two, yeah. So it was it was interesting because fund one, like I said, I know nothing about raising funds. I was just trying weird things and weird people. And, you know, I, I learned a little bit of lessons, but fund was mostly individuals. Uh, even though Bain was my first LP, rest is all complete individuals. <clears throat> and fun too, I think because fun, well, even though it was a very short period of time, uh, I don't know if I call it a strategy, it's just completely random. Uh, it's not a thought out strategy, but I done a lot of checks. I, I wrote 35 companies in 13 to 14 months. So it was like two a month, you know, but a lot of like, I don't know, red point back, index backs, you know, NEA backs, Andreessen backs, you know, I'm just able to tack so, on to these rounds. A lot. So for first fund, you know, usually for funds, funds allocate a little bit of amount to sort of top down on their successful, like if a successful company raises their seed, you do some yeah. prorata, right? And you didn't have that option for the first one. So talk to well, me, like, how did you, yeah. you know, uh, you know, got creative about that? You mean prorata, like falling on restaurants? Or, yeah, so, so like when your startup is raising the next round, you obviously your yeah. fund one didn't have funds to apply, right? So what did you, like, how did you sort of overtake or like find it? I know like you had a different method of like, you know, doing it, right? So uh, just uh, talk a little bit I mean, about Honest that. answer from fund one, I knew, I don't know nothing about Parada. I didn't know I should put more money. So I never asked. Yeah. A lot of fund one companies, I didn't put anything more. Not because they didn't want, they actually sometimes ask me, hey Tim, you did so much for us. Should, do you want to put some money in? No, nah, I don't have money. Sorry, man. You know, <laughs> my fund is so small. You go, you go have fun. You know, uh, uh, I'll help you. I'll support you. I'll help you find a lead maybe, but you know, okay. I don't have no money until one day my LP, uh, I was talking to my LPs like, Hey, you know, this, this so-and-so company is raising an A and, uh, yeah. I said, Hey Tim, what did you tell me? I would love to put more money in it. I said, you do. But how did I do that? Just create SPV, sir. Just create SPV. And then we'll, we'll, we'll support you and put it in there. And I knew about this, like probably almost end of fund one or beginning of fund two or something like that. It was like pretty late. <laughs> Some rounds I already completely missed anyways. But you know, like I know nothing about uh, what I should do. So anyway, that now I, I learned from my LPs that they're super interested to do more up rounds from some of my companies. So I started to do SPVs. And sometimes, some situations, I, I don't even need to do SPV. I just, I do SPV just for one LP. They just want to take the whole round or whatever. I just, whatever one needs to happen, I just, all right, just, just, I'll let you do it, you know. 
Yeah, so that's that's kind of what happens. There's SPVs and some of the uh, up rounds from there. Yeah, that, that's how I first got to know you, by the way, by looking at some of your deals. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So now you're deploying your fund too. Like, uh, how large was the fund too? And like, you know, how long did it take to raise and deploy? Yeah, so I'm actually deploying fund three now. But fund two, fund two was about 7 million, I think. Um, and took about almost two years to deploy. So 2020... One beginning of that 2021 up until end of last year, yeah. So, so and you were still doing pre seed. Uh, what was the check size like? Yeah, that was so seven million. We're running about 100k to 200k checks back in the day, and um, pretty much the same deal infra, infrastructure, pre seed, and seed. Yeah, the new challenge is running from 25k, 50k to 100, 200k, which uh. Yeah, it's a little dicey. the most hardest. Uh, <laughs> it's a little dance. dicier, sir. Yeah, it's not not that easy. And I one thing I learned really quickly is my old pitch doesn't work to do a two fifty k checks, right? Because mm -hmm. in the back of the day, it was just me. I just had to sell me. That's it. I don't have to sell anything else. Like, hey, I'm Tim Chen. I used to be a founder. You know, you know, we have really good operating experiences, and that's kind of it, right? Um. And I realized you even do a 250K checks or like 150K checks in some really good companies, you have to be more strategic about it. So I have to like talk about our LPs. You have to talk about our network. You have to talk about the things I'm doing. You have to talk. And you also need other validation proof points around you. It can't just be me talking about me. Like that's not going to be selling. Like if, remember fun one is word of mouth through their own organic word of mouth chatting and how do I increase that and we'll also increase exposure of that. So that was one thing I had to do to, to get into a larger check size. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, because I think fun to at least the companies I know includes Jasper AI, which sort yeah. of blew up into mainstream yeah. because of, you know, um, AI and, you know, I think the figures I've heard were they were making 50 million ARR at, at least maybe a year back. I don't know what the actual figure is. Um, but I remember, I think the Jasper AI was not initially successful. Um, I think they were doing something else, actually. Uh, yeah, I so I didn't back the initial initial. It was when they started to blow up is when yeah. I backed it. So, so it was, that was, a, I would say Jasper is definitely an exception. I don't typically do growth rounds, right? Mm -hmm. And it was definitely a pretty large uh, valuation, but their revenue is so high. And so, so was, you backed Jasper in the growth round, not the first no, 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 no. There's that round. Nobody, I never heard about it until they blew up. Hmm. Um, but it was definitely not the last round you saw on on the. Is not the not the, not the, the one round. Which, yeah, there's yeah. a round in between. Yes, that's that's why I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and right. so to me, that's an exception. But I took that exception for this company because it's definitely super exceptional performance. And also, I think the thesis, you know, was was they they can able to continue to build their internal data uh, gathering and able to actually continue to build that that product out that can really focus on marketing specific use cases is is what we kind of hone down to. Yeah, because I was I was thinking about like because of all the AI hype, what is the moat for a lot of companies, right? Especially in the app layer. Uh, I think, you know, there will be infralayer companies, you know, which will solve very specific problems. There will be foundational companies, you know, the Coheres and uh, OpenAI's of the world, which will obviously do the foundational model part of it. 
Uh, there'll probably be like CICD infrastructure companies which will have their own mode. Uh, but like consumer apps, which are straight up using foundational models, I think the mode probably is, you know, the interaction with the customers. Like that's how I was looking at it. Like what what are your thoughts on, like you know, where is the mode and you know AI because everyone uses an API from OpenAI yeah. and calls themselves an AI company. I don't know. I I won't. I'm always a little careful to call it moats mm-hmm. because moats by definition is something that has defensible or unique long-term defensibility. And a lot of times you don't have any long-term view about these companies. So yeah. I'll call them like differentiation, at least for now. Like I think that's what applications that are really AI native today, we haven't really fully seen the strategy play out yet. And my my strong belief, at least, you know, looking at Jasper, even though the Jaspers of the world, there's not just one. There's actually quite a few of yep. these Jaspers that gain a lot of revenue, you know, quickly. <laughs> Prosumer type of players or consumer type of players. You know, there's some language learning ones. There's a bunch of like these really fast growing revenue type of companies. But I think at the end of the day, what you cannot focus on just on the revenue is you actually focus on what is what is your ability to get to interact with your customers and what is your ability to really own the scenarios or really interact with your customers? And can you have the most unique context of how your user make actions or doing certain things? Because that data set is probably the most defensible so far we've seen is how you gather that data really matters. And, you know, Data modes don't really exist. I mean, Andreessen had a little big post about data modes are kind of like a little overrated. And I think I, I think in the past when we're saying let's train your own models only, that's the only approach. And um, you know, data modes don't typically work out because of like cost reasons and all the different things. I think we've definitely seen that didn't always becoming like the biggest importance. But so far, even though this early in LMs. Uh, we're going to continue to see a lot of iterations, a lot of improvements. So far, the only thing we know of is the data matters a lot. Because data no longer becomes your training data. Data also becomes your contextual data, your retrieval data, you, you know, your knowledge graphs, whatever you want to create to really have the best insight about your user. <clears throat> that data is really powerful. And really, the, the ability for you to gather that data, and I, I did a tweet about this. I think the next-gen AI products are similar to the open source products where open source products, you look at HashiCorp, you look at uh, Docker, or you look at, you know, a lot of these open source companies, their first few years, they have zero revenue, right? They just focus on growth. And the reason you want to do that is because you become the standard, right? HashiCorp, everybody used Terraform, everybody used Volts. You're, you're basically create this sort of like invisible standard and everybody's building around you. Nobody wants to pick anything else anymore, right? Because even though you might have a faster Terraform, there's so much providers, so much tooling, there's so much, you know, it's, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth it go through a little faster or a little better Terraforms, right? <clears throat> Similar for AI companies, I feel like most of us too focus on revenue might hurt us. I think actually the best AI companies in the future might be the ones actually gather the most data mm-hmm. and the best data. Like you should focus on data growth, right? Similar open source company, you're focusing on adoption growth. I think AI companies, 
this is generally grossing, generalizing for sure. Um, I do think there's a there's an argument for it for some companies to really think much deeper about getting the best data and getting it so wide and so deep in a particular industry. So you have the best coverage, like an incumbent would have, even though they're too broad, <laughs> right? They can't focus on every use case and every vertical. So how do you get into a vertical to be the best data context gathering machine? And I think that's more defensible than I have a you know, faster model or whatever. You know, any of these techniques can be also outdated pretty quickly. Yeah. But you have a, once you have the best data, you have so much more plays in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you invest in infrastructure. You, I would say like you're also investing in maybe a little bit and technical insights. Um, what do you think about crypto? Because we saw this big hype. Um, I mean, I still believe that we haven't seen a major use case that will sprawl like a common denominator use case, right? Like yeah. every major sort of hype cycle will have a common denominator use case. If that doesn't come through, it's sort of a niche industry, right? Um, when we we technically called it what Web3 as the new version of internet, but that sort of didn't play out. Uh, and you, I think you backed or... Um, you know, you definitely explored open source, you know, blockchain projects. Yeah. So I'm curious, yeah. like, you know, how do you see this hype? And are you seeing any major use cases? Or was it always meant to be like a niche subject, you know, cryptography, like software engineers used certificates yeah. and cryptography all through their careers, right? It's a niche part of you know a software development stack right yeah, yeah so all things don't have to be horizontally relevant at all places um so in my view i think crypto is sort of like that like it's not horizontally relevant everywhere because i think that's what happened in the hype cycle so i'm curious yeah. how you are thinking are you actively funding uh what's your thought process around it yeah so actually i worked on crypto for a year i was vpn at cosmos for about a year so I had my own front row seat a little bit back in those days and <clears throat> kind of saw how Cosmos ecosystem got growing, go growing and who's actually people are using it, what their use cases are. I kind of saw what that happened there. And I, I have to agree, right? Like, I think crypto people keep talking about how great and how widely, how game-changing everything is, but it's game-changing when everybody actually uses it, right? Like, not, there's so much so many things you had to go over to really adopt something. And oftentimes just regulation, right? We can't even go through a lot of use cases without regulation changing. And regulation is not going to change that fast, right? So I know like there's Uber pushes the regulation because it's widespread. We haven't seen that kind of similar thing yet in the crypto. So I think best cases right now, I'm still back in crypto, by the way. I, I don't think this is like a dead industry. Uh, you know, even though we can call a niche, it's a pretty big niche. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can call even like a 10 tiny billion niche is at a all. niche, right? Yeah, it's not a tiny niche at all. It's not yeah. like there's nobody doing anything. There's also no transactions. If you look at, if you focus on other things that are really growing, I think it's still, trading is like the number one use case. Def definitely, right? You know, DeFi's, loans, and all that stuff is the number one use case everybody's using it for. And that's a pretty big market. Obviously, it's not going to be it's not as huge as everybody's saying what it is, um, but that that's a number one default growing use cases. 
And when everybody's building all kinds of applications around, we, we have to see. There's no defined space that's fully breaking off yet, right? Everybody's playing a different ownership, digital ownership stuff. Some people are doing some kind of like, I don't know, DAOs or not. So there's kind of experimental things here and there. Combined aggregates, there's actually not a small value in all of these, but they're very fragmented, right? You can't sell a very vertical specific Web3 thing today. You're not going to survive at all. So you have to be at the lowest denominator and very valuable to everybody to have a chance to succeed. In but I think backing this space, what I believe in this space is we're going to continue to find people really figuring out what the more broader use cases are. And that will grow when we are getting, and I think it's not going to be in this really large ecosystems and economies. The people that are grabbing a lot on Web3, have you seen so far, has been always countries that have probably little infrastructure, has, doesn't have a very mature ecosystem. Like this is like a bootstrap way to have a much more smaller, <clears throat> less middleman way of doing things. So that it's just going to take time, unfortunately. We're not going to see across the whole worldwide adoption. Mm -hmm. It's going to adopt in a few countries. You're going to slowly able to roll out. There's more people doing certain, certain things. And so I'm backing, I'm still believing that we should back more tools. We should back a lot more people really enabling the next set of applications. But I'm definitely not able to tell you which app is going to be the killer app. Because I never... I never been a good consumer investor anyways. <laughs> so you ask me, I have no clue, but I can definitely can see the tooling still makes sense. Um, not every tool, but there's definitely tools that can have a 10 X value for people to build a, maybe the much better, you know, bridges, you know, much better, like swapping any exchanges or sort of token building tools has still super high utility. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's a, not an easy space to back. I think people are putting way too much money way too quickly and way too much valuation in all of these. And there is so little hope for them, right? And there's um, additional regulatory risk and yeah, know, where the company's kind of situation stuff. risk, like there's yeah. so much. Uh... So I think people are too optimistic that you can just sell to Web3 and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I think in the short term, that's very, very, very hard. Like if you have a token, maybe you have enough value to kind of like fool investors and fool everybody else. But long-term wise, you don't, no token has long-term value except the fundam fundamental ones, right? Yeah. Every one of them is more skeptical. It's like they're all based on just, you know, somebody believing it. <laughs> no practical yeah. value whatsoever. Yeah, but most it has tokens are value. cults yeah. that want to be religions is what I think. Yeah, it's funny when I was talking to crypto companies back in a year or two ago, like the Zoom calls I joined, they will not put their video up They'll have pseudo names like I'm Mr. Zeke or whatever, you know. Like <laughs> I'm like the only person with my real name and a video up in there. And I was like, oh, to protect our privacy and to make sure we're not a, a targeted when we become so successful, or whatever. That's just like the funniest stuff talking to these companies. Like, wow. Like, how do I trust you? This is this is so bizarre. What do you think about <laughs> like? blockchain as a database because you fund infrastructure and you look at the stuff yeah. um one of the things i believe is you know i think we sort of at least the hype cycle overestimated the use of a decentralized ledger yeah um because obviously one of the reasons people use cloud is because centralization is giving you economies of scale and efficiency added into it and that's why 
it's cheaper, better, you know, all good things that come by centralizing compute, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of like antithesis to what we did in cloud. Uh, and not to say that it's bad, but, and it's sometimes called as, hey, because, you know, big tech doesn't believe in blockchain because, you know, it's against their business. But technically it's, you know, it's not. Like if it's a new database that works for a different purpose, you can always have, you know, you know services that work with that. Um, but I'm curious, like, that is that efficiency lost and how many use cases like it makes sense to have that you lose this efficiency but you're gaining you know uh, you know other things from it right uh, have you thought yeah. about like purely as a database aspect well you know what is a database is a very elusive term in the first place i think everybody assuming a database looks like a SQL database. I can just run SQL and all my data is out there and it's fast, is efficient. If that's what you want a database to be, then surely decentralized is not the best option for you, right? When I do think what database in the future or databases are decentralized, why they're good for should be completely different. You shouldn't expect a database to have low latency, you know, um, and, and return all your requests all the time and do all that stuff. Like that's not the purpose if you ever want to have a decentralized database to me what i think decentralized decentralized database might be really useful for or ledger or whatever you call it is for use cases where it matters right so not for all use cases for sure i think if you want to collect data that's private and have a lot of sensitivity if you want to be able to prove something exists with a lot of sensitivity how do i make sure that is provable without you exposing our data. So it can still be a database, but a very specialized database, you know? Yeah. And I've seen the most cases that would make sense to me are usually around cases where like, I want to prove something exists. Like say, you know, how do I give you a loan that know your credit score? We basically have to give me a lot of information <laughs> to do that, right? And so that might work for, you know, Equifax or some things you trust, but they've been leaking data all the time now, right? You know, like mm -hmm. it's not a trustworthy thing. How about newer companies like them want to be able to do new loans and don't want to go through that credit? You know, like how do you do that? There's basically no way then, right? So I think decentralized some level that actually makes sense when you actually think about the validity of data of not exposing your data sets. I think to me, it makes sense. Like okay, let's build zero knowledge proof ways to verify data that actually exists there's a way to verify that they're pulling from very credible sources and you build a database that has a bunch of proof points about these identities. And I just, I just want to know you have income larger than X, right? I don't really care how much you have. I don't want to make sure you have certain things, right? I, I have a database that has very particular guarantees and correctness on some level <clears throat> and it's decentralized. Nobody can play games with this, right? Um, and so that to me has more... I can think of more use cases like that. That seems to make more sense. But like replacing Postgres or replacing Snowflake, like okay, like if this is it's getting a little bit far. You can you can have arguments for that too, but I don't think you should treat it as a Snowflake competitor, right? Or or something like that. That doesn't. It's not going to be that straightforward. There has to be like super low level cost reasons or some compute reasons, but you know. Those are more far-fetched. I think the immediate, easier ones to think about are the sensitive data, the, the validity, and really treating 
third-party trusts that we can outsource to each other. Those those situations, I I think that they're more valid. Yeah, I yeah. think that the identity and um, source of truth aspects where you you have lightweight data that is being verified. I think that's where yeah we might actually see a major applications come out. Um, uh, I know we're running out of time, so I want to shift gears and sort of ask you, you know, sort of concluding questions um, yeah. quickly. Um, who are the mentors um, that you have who shaped your career? Ah, that's a good question. Actually, quite a few. But I just mentioned Jake Zeller, right? I mean, without him, I don't know how to run a fund at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so many questions I bring to him, like, hey, what should I do on this LPAC side letter? You know, all kind of stuff. So I really thank him a lot for 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 being a mentor for this fundraising and all this stuff. And then over time, though, you know, every everybody in my career has helped me quite a bit. Mesosphere, uh, Ben Hyman was my manager a little bit. He was a creator of Mesos. I worked with him quite a bit, and I learned a lot from him. You know. Um, yeah, over time, I think being in this business, especially in, in venture capital, a lot of people are my mentors. I learned a lot from every interactions, you know, from Tomas at Redpoint. He used to be a Redpoint at Fury Ventures now. You know, I learned a lot from <clears throat> Bogomil at Sequoia, you know, uh, Martina Andreessen, you know, just different people. They have very cool point of views. <laughs> They're all a little different. They'll never always agree, which is great, right? You don't want everybody to always do the same thing. Um, so a lot of different people really help me learn what they are doing. Or Ethan and Bessemer, right? A lot of these investors really help me understand. And they don't, I don't think they're like my official mentors. They don't call it like I'm a mentee or a mentor. But you know, we have regular chats here and there. And it always helped me a lot to learn about this business because I never worked at a VC fund. Um, and it takes a long time to really get up to speed, to sort of speak. Because I realized yeah. that actually there's so much insider knowledge that's never being shared. You can't search online for most of these like insider things. So, yeah. so that's a good segue to the next question. So what do you know about early stage investing now that you wish you know before when you, <laughs> when you started? I don't know. I There's so many things. But what, one thing I really grew into now well, I think one thing is price matters a lot. You know, I didn't really thought too much back in the day when I had a small fund and maybe I didn't need to, but now I know price matters a lot. So I have to really figure out the right price at the right point. It don't matter how hot it is. I have to so have conviction that the price a matters. Hot round, a hot seed round at $250 million is not worth it. Is that what you're saying? Not worth it for me. It might be worth for other people because this is what I learned. Every fund has different motivations. Not every round is meant to, they have to return their fund, but their time horizon, their strategy, the way they view every round, the percentage of that capital to their fund is so different, right? Me putting a 250, 500K and never see their light of day anymore. There's no situation for me ever to ever work out. Where for them, it may not be immediate hotness, but it might lead into a ton of other great companies. Sometimes it's worthwhile to do the long-term game, right? So I don't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. So we all have, we all play the game differently. And that's one thing I learned for sure as an investor. Like it's not every investing, not every investment out of every fund is the same. 
Um, every partner makes independent decisions, some level, and every dynamics is different and sometimes leads into different conclusions about certain things. So yeah, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. back to your question, I feel like price matters a lot, but you know, in, at a day, I don't want to, you don't want to follow purely just follow because when it works, you don't even know why. <laughs> And when it doesn't work, it was like, what the, why did I even do this in the first place? Right. Like it's just such a weird, like, like I much rather try to grow and learn, you know, you don't learn as an investor. If you follow, you learn nothing, you you learn somewhat, of course, but you don't really learn the most. If you just only follow, I think the most beautiful part of investing is you can prove yourself wrong and right all the time. Um, so I want to take the opportunity to grow and learn as much as possible. And not just purely follow, because that that's not a fun way to do it. Yeah. Uh, next one. What are the books uh, that are your favorites? Anything interesting that you're reading? Oh man, ah, uh, I'm reading reading so much AI papers now. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what other books I'm reading to be honest. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a little. I'm a little lost. I'm just reading AI papers after AI papers now. Just so many of them, I can't even keep up anymore. So that's the only last thing is just reading more AI papers, to be honest. <laughs> You're focused on your job. Um, so last one, advice to recent college graduates who is looking to get into investing or starting a company. Yeah, you know what? Quite a few people reached out to me about this. And I don't know, my take is a little different than most people because your typical path to go to be a VC job is, you know, to go to do an MBA or something, right? Do a product management role and, you know, slowly get into some roles. But I, I think in a day to, to be successful in this business, you have to create your own brand one way or another, no matter what route you take, you cannot just slot in a fund. Right. And I think we're getting harder and harder to do investing now because of so many people are in this space. So you just had to build your own brand. I told people just build your own brand. You know, don't I don't care where you're from, how you're from, what you do. If you can build your own brand, you will have deal flow, you have value, and you you'll be able to invest. And either you're gonna raise your own fund or you're gonna join other people's fund. You know, you never apply to a VC fund. A VC fund basically wants to hire you. Like they want you in. Uh, that's the best way to get into a fund. So you have to basically already be marketable in some level. Like you want people to already want you in. And so you're never waiting for a fund to see the value, take a bet, you know, like that kind of thing. That doesn't, that works for larger companies. I can, I can do, you know, I'm, I'm Google now. I can early hire, you know, whatever. I can take some bets on people. Like VC fund don't do that that much. Yeah. So my biggest advice for folks, first you have be valuable yourself. Don't wait, right? Do something on your own. And second of all, I feel like a lot of people don't focus on building their reputation the right way. Like I mentioned, my reputation grew very particularly because the founders keep telling I'm the best investor for them. So you have to build founder reputation to be successful. And then they also build investor reputation to be long-term successful. So founder reputation is probably the first thing you can do initially is get the founders, whoever you work with, either just free consulting, volunteering, turn into whatever. You could be tiny angel checks, whatever way you engage with founders, make sure they feel like you're the best valuable person because that can grow exponentially higher. 
I think that's a good note to end the podcast as well. So thanks, Tim. Thanks for coming onto the podcast and taking time. Of course. Excited. Great to be here. <laughs>